Ride the tiger! See, it's too late now. You missed your chance. <laughs> Welcome to the Four Corners Crime Cast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie, and today we are talking about the murder of Joe Arity. And where did you do your research on this one, Katie? Mostly on friendsofjoearity.com, and then I also watched a histographic on YouTube, and then some other random sources that mostly took from Friends of Joe Arity. And was this one a listener recommendation? I, it was. I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure it was by Rusty, because the website screwed up the, the email he sent. Oh, so no last name. It was just a mishmash, and I pulled out Joe Arity and Rusty out of it. Okay, Mr. Trombone, thank you for the suggestion. What if it was Rush Limbaugh? Oh. That's entirely possible. I wouldn't know, though. Okay, Rush. Well, Mr. Russ T. Um, Barley Sheath, whatever. Ooh, uh, Russ T. Tractor? Rusty, Rusty Tractor? Was that it? No. I don't think so, mm-hmm. but... But we are sure that it was Joe Arity. Yes. Which sounds like a murderer's name, not someone who's being murdered, so... What makes someone's name a murderer's name? Oh, I don't know. Like, Clinton is definitely a murderer name. First name Clinton. Or last name? Either. Well, Clinton first name is definitely a murderer. Clinton last name hides behind the veil of government. I knew a kid named Clinton Larch. That dude definitely... Clinton Larch is probably, like, the number one name I was going (laughs) to say right now. That's crazy. I think he popped heads off the birds when we were kids. That sounds like a Clinton Larch thing to do. He had glasses. Yep, even worse. Can't trust him, has bad vision. Hey, so Katie. Yes? Are you, are you at all worried that maybe the friends of Joe Arity are not the best people to could be as a, a source? Like maybe they're a little biased as being uh, friends, friends of, Joe, of Arity. Joe Arity. I mean, that's just what they named their group, but all the research was done by someone else. Oh, so... Are these, like, friends he had in real life? No. (laughs) (laughs) These are people trying to fight for the justice, Rory. So this story was not discovered until, I want to say, 50 or so years after Arity's death. So they're not actually his friends. They don't know him, never knew him. This was just a group they formed after they discovered what had happened. I think it's fucked up that they're saying they're his friends when they never even met the man. I don't know. I have friends I've never met. That's because we do a podcast, and there's some weirdos out there who oh. think you're their friend. I just want to talk to my friends out there in podcast land real quick. <laughs> Guys, I know we don't talk as often as I'd like, but I do consider all of you my good friends. And uh, thanks for listening to me. You want to go ahead and start us off on this one, Katie? Joe Arity was born April 29th, 1915, to Mary and Henry Arity, Syrian immigrants who had recently moved to Pueblo, Colorado. Are Henry and Mary their actual names? I am not sure. Henry worked in a steel mill, making a decent living for his family while he adjusted to life in America. Things seemed relatively normal in the Arity family as Joe grew, but Henry and Mary had an inkling that something was wrong when Joe didn't begin to speak until he was five years old. So just for people who don't have children, when do they start speaking normally? So an exact timeline, they babble around six months. They say their first words between 10 and 15 months, usually around 12. And then they start to combine into simple sentences around 18 months. And this just all makes more sense because I think we've covered it before that I was speaking around six months full sentences. Were you? Yeah. I will call your mom right now. We covered this last time and you did call her and she affirmed it. 
Despite this, they enrolled him in school in 1921. He did his best for a year, but at the beginning of his second year, the principal called Mary and Henry in to speak to them. He explained that Joe was unable to learn and needed to be kept at home. Because of their financial situation, Mary was unable to homeschool Joe, and he was left to wander from 1922 to 1925. Did the schools just do this back then? Just like, well, we don't have any special education programs or anything, right? So we just kick him out to the streets? Don't want him in school? I mean, basically, yeah. We didn't have no child left behind back then. Yeah, I mean... In the 20s. So how do they know that he was intellectually disabled just because he didn't speak? Was this was he what we would now call autistic? Would he would he would No, he... he had an intellectual disability. Okay. So his IQ was 46, which means he functioned at a 6-year-old oh, level. Yeah, he so he was not um Anything under 70 is considered intellectually disabled, and the most severe is 20 and under, so he was kind of right in the middle where he was able to kind of function but not anywhere near a level where he would be able to attend school. They didn't allocate any time for people that needed special encouragement? Like, what what was the reason they kept him out of school? I'm not entirely sure the exact reasoning, but I'm sure it was something along the lines of he's just not achieving and they don't have the time to spend to bring him to the level that all the other children are functioning at. I see. During this time, Mary had two more children, taking away her attention from Joe and leaving him alone. He spent his time making mud pies, playing with whatever he could find on the street, and just walking around town. Joe was painfully shy and could only speak in one or two word sentences, so he didn't have any friends and rarely socialized with anyone. In 1925, something occurred with Henry Arity, but accounts differ. Some sources say that he lost his job at the steel mill, while others say that he became a bootlegger selling illegal alcohol and spent a good portion of his time in prison. Either way, Henry was unable to support his family and needed to take some of the burden off himself and his wife. They petitioned before the court to have Joe sent to an institution, which was granted. He was remanded to the custody of the Colorado State Home and Training School for Mental Defectives. Once again, it's 1925. They had different ways of wording things back then. Yes. But that was a thing where parents could literally just be like, oh, um, I can't handle this kid anymore. Will you take it? You could institutionalize anyone. Anyone. For any reason. There are so many people that have written accounts of being in mental institutions that were not, had no MI in any way, shape, or form. Like if a woman got divorced, her husband could be like, nope, I'm going to just send you away to a psych ward. How did they get away with that shit? They they weren't something that people wanted to deal with. It was easier to lock them away and pretend like it didn't exist, basically. We were very close-minded back then, I would say. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say we've come a ways in a hundred years, almost. Arguably not, but... (laughs) (laughs) We tried? Baby steps on the bus. Baby steps on the bus. Let them on the bus. I couldn't find much history on this institution besides the fact that it's actually still open today, operating under the name Grand Junction Regional Center. That flows off the tongue a little better. Joe underwent a series of tests of his mental capacity while at the state home. It was discovered that he was unable to remember four digits, speak in more than two to three word sentences, and did not know his colors, saying red was black, blue was green, and green was blue. He never initiated answers on his own, and he only replied when he was questioned by others. An IQ test determined his IQ to be 46, meaning he operated at a six-year-old level. 
His doctors labeled him an imbecile. So he was about 10 then, still? This was still when he was around 10 years mm-hmm. old? Yeah, he was around 10, 11. And imbecile is another word that we uh, don't use these days, right? Yes. Not, it's used, but not referring to people who are mentally disabled. Intellectually oh. disabled, sorry. So it would just be like, that guy's an imbecile. We're not talking about someone who's... Okay, I get what you're saying now, I think. Imbecile, I haven't heard... I, I didn't know that was a uh, technical term. I didn't know they labeled people imbeciles. They really used whatever terminology they wanted back then. And it, to be honest, doctors back then were just dudes that smoked cigars really well. That's about it. In August of 1926, Henry Arity began to feel guilty for sending his first son away to an institution. With the help of neighbors, he petitioned the school to return Joe to his custody, which was granted. They didn't say anything like, well, why didn't you want your kid before, McAsshole? One less kid to take care of. Just a common thing to just let the government take care of the kid. I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around it, okay? Well, if you don't remember, the 1920s were not America's greatest time, right? Wasn't there like a giant market crash and a dust bowl and a whole bunch of sad, out-of-work Great Depression people? A bunch of dudes shot themselves in the brains. In the 30s, yeah. In the 30s, so that's the thing. I think there was a lot of Depression babies come out of that era. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Everyone was poor. Poor people fuck. Just what it is. Joe returned home from 1926 to 1929 from ages 11 to 13. During this time, he returned to his favorite activities, wandering around town, quietly entertaining himself with things he found in the street. Unfortunately, people who were intellectually disabled or severely mentally ill were not treated well in the 1920s or really until the late 1960s when the deinstitutionalization movement began to pick up speed with Lake versus Cameron. Our history of institutionalizing anyone and everyone deemed mentally ill is rife with abuse and neglect of those the most in need of care and led us directly into the tough-on-crime mass incarceration era where we replaced institutions with jails and prisons. But that's a different podcast. If you're interested in more, Geraldo Rivero did an expose film called Willowbrook, The Last Great Disgrace, that shows what most institutions were like during this time and why the deinstitutionalization movement began. On September 17, 1929, when Joe was only 13, he was discovered by a probationer being sodomized by a group of teenagers. Because of Joe's disability, he was arrested and blamed for the attack. The probationer, who was responsible for watching over those released from prisons and institutions, wrote a scathing letter to the state home, scolding them for letting Joe back into the community and demanding that he be sent back to the home. Wait, he was getting... He was getting sodomized, and he got in trouble? Mm Mm-hmm. Damn, that sucks. Some claim that the probationer actually said Joe was the one attacking the other teens, and that he was a serious danger to society. Joe was sent back to the state home, where in his file it was noted that he was a sexual deviant. From 1929 to 1936, Joe was back in the state home. He spent almost all of his time in his room alone, and was considered too unstable to be included in any sort of classroom activities or farm work. Because of that same situation before, or just in general? No, just the same situation. I mean, he, his whole entire life, 
I mean, after he probably turned around 10, he operated at a six-year-old level. So this was a 20-year-old man that functioned as a six-year-old. So there's really... And he was also horribly, painfully shy. And so he preferred to be alone by himself, entertaining himself. So that combined with not really being able to teach him, they just kind of let him do his own thing. When he was 20, he began working small jobs in the kitchen and became close with one of the staff. Interestingly, it was noted that Joe showed no attraction to women. Was that because of his age that he was stuck at? Yeah, he really never hit puberty and started thinking thoughts like that. Oh, okay. Passing by the windows of the state home was a large rail line. During the height of the Great Depression, those institutionalized enjoyed sitting and watching the men and women riding on top of the rail cars, attempting to train hop their way to a city with jobs. After a while, some of the inmates began train hopping as well, including Joe. How'd they get to the train from the, from the jail? Probably just saw it across the fence. They did what? How'd they get to the train? Yeah. They saw it pass by the fence to the yard or whatever? Yeah, but they're train hopping. You gotta get to the train, right? To hop... They weren't. So they were inmates because they weren't allowed to like just leave freely and go back home. But they had more freedom than an actual like prisoner. So they were like camped inmates or something. They were like mental institution people. Yeah, you're still allowed to like go outside, and it's good for you to go outside. So they encourage it, or they force you. Yeah, they're not. They forced me when I was. They're not criminals technically. No. Yeah. But they're still a ward of the state, yeah. so they're not responsible for themselves, but they also have more freedom. When he was 22 on August 8, 1936, Joe left with another inmate. While the other man hopped on a train to Salt Lake City, Joe stayed behind for a night, wandering the city as he liked to do. Three other men joined Arity the next night, and on Monday the 10th, the four hopped a freight train heading to Pueblo around a 24-hour ride. Once they'd arrived, Joe broke off from the group, and no one was aware of his whereabouts for the day. That night, they found him still in the rail yard, and they hopped a train heading back to Grand Junction. And they took Joe with them? Yes. Joe again wandered off, but this time no one saw him for a week. He reappeared in a Cheyenne, Wyoming rail yard on August 20th, asking a group in a kitchen car if he could work for food and some money. Joe worked for them for six days, but had to be left in Cheyenne when the group moved because he was not a paid employee. Later that night, Joe was arrested in the rail yard for vagrancy. So he wasn't arrested as long as he was working, but then as soon as he didn't have a job, they said, nah, you can't be here. Basically. Well, they should have hired him permanent. How did he get to Cheyenne? A train. So he just was randomly hopping trains? Mm -hmm. And just getting off when they stopped early. When Joe was missing for those seven days, a brutal murder occurred in Pueblo. 15-year-old Dorothy Drain and her 12-year-old sister Barbara were attacked in their home while they slept. Their parents returned home from a dance to find Dorothy dead and Barbara barely alive. Both had been attacked with a hatchet to the head, and Dorothy had been raped. After around a week, Barbara woke from her coma and was able to recount her story. The Drain girl's attack was also connected to one that had occurred on August 2nd. 72-year-old Sally Crumpley and 48-year-old R.O. McMurtry had been attacked while sleeping in bed together, again with a hatchet. Sally died from the attack while R.O. survived. Her name was R.O.? That's what it was listed as. I don't know what her exact name was. This is important because the first night that Joe was in jail, 
Sheriff George Carroll claimed that he obtained a full confession to the attack on the Drain Girls from Joe. After he'd said he'd come to Cheyenne from Pueblo, Carroll apparently began to question Joe, who immediately told the entire story, that he'd beaten the girls with a bat. Carroll then called the sheriff in Pueblo, and of course the press to tell them that he himself had caught the murder suspect that everyone was searching for. The next day, Carroll went to the press to correct himself, saying that Joe had changed the story many times, but finally admitted that he used a hatchet, not a bat. More than likely through some kind of coerced confession? I mean, Joe still at this point could only speak in two to three word increments, so he didn't get any sort of confession. So he made it all up. Yes, basically, I have a feeling he sat and he talked at Joe for six hours, and Joe just maybe said yes or no every once in a while, and that was his quote-unquote confession. A full written confession. Carol also learned that Pueblo already had their suspect, a man named Frank Aguilar. Frank had been caught after showing up to Dorothy's funeral and being recognized by the Drain family, as he'd briefly worked for their father. Because of this, Carol had to also coerce Joe into admitting he'd committed the crime with Frank in easy feet. On the 28th, Carol took Joe to the crime scene and had him reenact the night's events, which he supposedly was able to do. The other officers that testified to this event all seemed to repeat exactly what Carol had said and added no new information or their own observations. Sneaky thin blue line. Just a case of them saying, yep, it went exactly as uh, Carol said. Mm-hmm. Exactly. On September 2nd, Frank and Joe were apparently interviewed together. During the entire interview, Frank was only asked six questions about Joe, and Joe was asked nothing. Apparently, his confession wasn't needed to corroborate anything Frank was saying. When signing the confession, Joe spelled his own last name incorrectly. Frank Aguilar went to trial first. The one piece of actual evidence they had against Joe that was presented at Frank's trial was hair. Apparently, a toxicologist compared hairs found in the drain girl's bed to a sample sent from Joe and found one single hair was a match. This type of testing was later discovered to be completely inaccurate and has not been used for quite some time. Did they have an accurate way to actually look at hair follicles back then, or was it just like a microscope and compare and then an opinion that they could be the same? I think back then you could compare hair types, so like you could tell what race the hair came from. But I don't think you could go any further than that, really. Well, that's all we need. There's only one white person and one black person in this room, and one Asian person and one Mexican person. Ever. Right? Frank Aguilar was Mexican. So. Oh, see? Frank's throwing off our numbers. On February 8th, 1937, Joe's sanity trial began. To be considered insane, psychologists had to prove that Joe did not know the difference between good and evil and right from wrong. After three psychiatrists testified that Joe was not insane, but did not know right from wrong, he was found sane and sent to trial. How does that work? Honestly, so he didn't, or he did know right from wrong, but he was not sane? He was not insane, but he didn't know right from wrong. So he was not insane. Legally insane, but they testified that basically he did not have any sort of MI that would have made him criminally not culpable. Except that he didn't know what right and wrong was. Yeah. Well, that seems like a lack of culpability right there. 
testified that he was legally insane, but they said it in a way that confused the jury into thinking he was sane. Because they said, well, they said he doesn't have a mental illness, but he doesn't know right from wrong. Basically, they're saying, well, he's sane, but he's insane. And the jurors didn't know how to differentiate anything they were saying. It kind of sounds like they're literally saying he's dumb. Nope. You can't say nope. Only Katie can say nope. Reword it. But that's what they're saying. I mean, they weren't. It sounds like they're saying he's stupid. I don't know how to answer that. I mean, they weren't saying really anything about him. I think they're being tricky. They, this was back then when they thought that you had to have a period where you were normal and then something occurred and you started, your behavior changed and then that would be considered you were mentally ill because you were normal and then you have this behavior to compare it to that is unnormal now and that's MI and then, but Joe had been like this whole life so they had nothing to compare his behavior to and in, in that case he would be technically not mentally ill or intellectually disabled, that's just him but he still doesn't know right from wrong sounds convoluted it was just a hot mess i mean this was our justice system back then so on april 12th 1937 joe's trial began his defense lawyer asked that rather than presenting evidence he be allowed to use his time to present another insanity plea the prosecution's evidence was mainly presented by sheriff carroll who went on the witness stand and made joe seem like a criminal mastermind the defense made an attempt to present the insanity plea once again, but the psychiatrist who had originally been called still testified that Joe did not know right from wrong, but was not insane. Sheriff Carroll also testified for the defense. I'm not sure why they called him, but he of course claimed that he had hours of full-on conversation with Joe and believed he was legally competent. And those were just conversations of probably of him talking at Joe. Mm-hmm. Combined with the hair evidence, Joe was found guilty of murder on April 17, 1937, and sentenced to death by gas chamber. Did they ever put Joe on the stand himself so that the jury could see that he was obviously not all with it? I don't think so. I think, well, maybe they did. I don't, I don't recall, honestly, but... It seems like any good jury, any normal set of people would notice that this guy's not doesn't mean he can't kill somebody though he's not functioning you know on tip-top levels i don't know seems like there should be some kind of defense for this type of individual back then there was not now it is the Mm. scotus ruled that it is illegal to put someone to death that is intellectually disabled a little late if you ask me though just saying a little on the late side joe arity quickly became known as the happiest man on death row Because he was unaware of his surroundings and eventual fate, Joe was content to stay in his cell and play alone all day. The prison warden, Roy Best, became close with Joe, almost becoming a father figure. Best would bring Joe toys, one of his favorites being a wooden train that he played with almost all day long. Even the other death row inmates became fond of Joe, tolerating his play night and day, unbothered if he made any sort of noise at night while they were trying to sleep. In the two years Joe was in prison, he was granted nine stays of execution as a lawyer fought to have him found insane and save his life. That's quite a bit of stays of execution. I mean, they had a, a pretty quick path back then. Oh, yeah. It wasn't like a 40-year process back then. Right? I think Frank Aguilar was 
in prison for maybe like a year, maybe like 10 months to a year, and then he was executed. Damn. Back then it was, you're convicted, you can try to appeal, you're dead. It wasn't 40 years of appeals because the courts weren't so bogged down with all the cases. I mean, he still got nine appeals, but in two years, holy shit, that's, that's fast. That's kind of cute, though, that they were all fond of him. Oh, yeah, they all loved him, and he was, I mean, it's basically, you have a child in prison. He's in yeah. an adult person's body, but he's still basically a child, and they treated him as such and tried to make it as comfortable as possible for him. Well, that was nice of them. You don't see that type of uh, compassion in prison very often. Unfortunately, Joe's appeals were denied and his execution date arrived. On January 6, 1939, Joe's last meal was ice cream, and he was administered his last rites in two-word increments as he was unable to remember more and repeat them back to the chaplain. On his way to the gas chamber, Joe gave away his toy train to one of his friends and other belongings to Warden Best. He was smiling from ear to ear while being led to the gas chamber, unaware that he would not be coming back to his cell. Warden Best held his hand as he was placed in the chair, still smiling. The only time he became briefly concerned was when they placed a blindfold over his eyes, but he relaxed as soon as Best took his hand again. Joe was buried in the prison cemetery, forgotten for over 50 years. In 1992, a sociologist opened an out-of-print book and discovered a poem written by Warden Best after Joe's execution, explaining his sorrow over Joe's murder. After sending it to Robert Persky, he was able to uncover that the poem had been written about Joe and began to look into the case. In 1995, Persky published the book Deadly Innocence, detailing Joe's story, and publicity began to pick up. In 2007, a group named Friends of Joe Arity erected a new marble tombstone at his gravesite. After preparing for years, a petition for a posthumous pardon was granted by the Colorado governor. On May 19, 2011, Joe's tombstone was engraved with, quote, Here lies an innocent man. That's really sad. Yeah. Horrible. I mean, sad, terrible tale from the, the 1930s Midwest. Colorado's Midwest? Four Corners, I would say. Ah, Four yeah. Corners West. But, I mean, this wasn't, this was just a murder. This was not an execution. This was... Yeah, it was government-sanctioned murder. Because mm-hmm. he was fully innocent. They just didn't want to, I don't know, open their eyes, I guess? Was it just easier to blame stuff on someone who couldn't stick up for themselves? Well, it, this falls, I'm pretty sure this may fall under that same, like, communism ideal where these type of people don't exist in America, and the only type of people that commit murders are people that are insane. Mm-hmm. Realistically, they didn't need him, so they had Frank Aguilar, who was the one that did it, and he also murdered Sally Crumpley. They found he eventually admitted to that too so they didn't have any reason to convict and execute joe at all the hair the hair it just sort of fit the narrative that they kind of chose for that and i think sheriff carroll was just so fucking obnoxious and adamant and he'd already gone to the press and been like look this person gave me a full confession he said he did it he said he did it with frank Case closed. He was too and so, far in to go back. Yeah, at that point, you can't like go to the press and be like, "Oh well." He didn't do any of he that. He didn't do I any of it. Fuck I would Sheriff jump Carol. the gun. So like, yeah, it was just horribly fucked up, and he obviously is innocent and was wrongfully executed. 
Colorado has a moratorium, or no, they don't even have a moratorium. They completely abolished the death penalty in 2019, which I guess is a good thing. So is that going to do it for us this week, Katie? That is it, yep. All right, guys, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. It's F-O-U-R corners crimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, on Twitter at fourcornerscast, and at fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com. And don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify. Check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com, where you can get an episode list. Uh, you can submit a idea that you have for an episode that you'd like to hear, or you can get your free sticker by going to our merch store, typing in the code bingo bango at checkout, and we'll send it out to you for free. Just remember that uh, 2021 is a good time, and uh, poor Joe Arity. Poor, poor Joe. All right, guys, we'll talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, mothers! Mrs. Bach, not Vivaldi? You're insane. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>